0: Welcome to Resident Advisors Exchange, a series of conversations with the artists, labels, and promoters who are shaping the electronic music landscape. I'm Jordan Rothline, and I'm the tech editor at Resident Advisor. About 10 minutes before this interview took place, Craig Leon cheerfully described himself as an old guy who likes to talk and has plenty of stories to tell. He wasn't lying. Listening to Leon, it's hard not to be amazed. In the 70s, he worked for Sire Records in New York, scouring the city's downtown scene for artists to sign and record. His hit list was impressive. The Ramones, Talking Heads, Suicide, and Blondie are just a few of the bands we might never have heard if Leon hadn't caught them at clubs like CBGB. He's had a spectacular career as a recording producer since then, but all the while he's nurtured a curious side project, Nomos, an electronic album that imagines the folk music of an alien species. Leon produced Nomos more than 30 years ago, and has been playing it live ever since. Last year, Revenge International reissued the album, bringing Leon's classic music to new ears and landing Leon on the festival circuit. One of the most recent performances of Nomos happened at CTM festival in Berlin, where this live exchange with Will Lynch took place.
1: I want to talk about NOMOS, which is kind of the reason you're here. You perform the album on Thursday night. It's an album that was recorded 30 years ago at this point.
2: The first version of it was done in 1979, I think. It started in 79. It was released in 1981.
1: So NOMOS has a um, particularly fascinating backstory as an album. Could you walk us through what yeah, it is exactly? Yeah, that might take the
2: whole afternoon, but it, it's worth it. But in any case... Um, Nomos is an album that was inspired by seeing an art exhibition in New York in 1973 which uh, was art of an African tribe called the Dogon who live in Mali and have a very unique religious and philosophical system that's based on the fact that very similar to what we have in our society is the angels who came down from heaven and showed us how to be civilized. They, they have one where they have their own set of angels, but they're very, very specific about these angels. And they were beings that came from another place in the galaxy. Quite a good science fiction story, actually. And they came down and showed them how to cultivate crops, how to build civilization, imbued within them a kind of a religious and philosophical system, which the Dogon then carried over into ancient Egypt, which became what we know as ancient Egyptian religion, it's it's one of the roots of that, and the interesting thing was they knew in their culture where these beings came from and what they looked like. They had a very specific map that they gave them of uh, this double-starred planet with a dead star and a live one going around each other with a planet that was there, and that's where the, um, the nomos, as they were called, these beings, came from. And the nomos were very, very tall, elongated figures that um, could live in water and could live on land as well. They were amphibious. They really got obsessed with these nomos uh, in their culture, and all of their art, virtually, is pictures of the nomos over thousands of years. It's either drawings or sculptures, and it's all pretty much the same thing. And we saw all of this and it was like this very complicated religious system that they that they brought as well, way beyond what anybody else was experiencing at at, at that time in Earth's history. And we said, okay, well, let's say these guys were right. (laughs) Okay, I mean, why not, you (laughs) you know? The thing that would elaborate as a science fiction story would be, well, if they brought you know how to grow crops, and they brought you know how to basically a, a philosophical system and all of that. Then surely they must have brought music with them as well. So the first music that we had from this area would be obviously something that was a very primitive base on what these guys were listening to on their Walkman when they came, or on their iPods when they came on their journey from the planet they came from in the star system Sirius, is is what it is. I, I built an album based on very, very early five note patterns that repeat, uh, which is very similar to other ancient music, but I didn't use a standard pentatonic scale. And then I used rhythms that were very simple, usually three against four that are very typical of the early African rhythms of that area. But they they weren't any attempt to be authentic, it was just, this is supposed to be music from another planet, you see. So um, I did that and then I put the whole thing through um, All sorts of electronic processing, mostly feedback devices, to make it sound different, because obviously these very long beings that could live in water probably heard things a different way than we do. And that's the story of Nomos. And we we made the record about three or four years after that and got very lucky because a folk label that was run by a friend of mine decided uh, to let us record the record for them. So we did it and uh, you know, it came out in 1981. Few people noticed it. It got some attention. It was a ballet for Twyla Tharp's dance troupe, uh, which was revised again by Carol Armitage, Armitage Go Dance, which is, she was the principal ballerina for the Merce Cunningham dance troupe and now has her own. And she did it about a year ago or maybe two years ago in New York. So it's, it's been around. The thing that was funny, when I went to the folk label, which was called Tacoma. It was run by a fellow named John Fahey. He's not around. But he was a a wonderful acoustic guitar player in the American folk tradition and created his own kind of like landscapes on acoustic guitar. But he also allowed synthesizer records on his label. He had uh, one of the guys from, Bernie Krause from Beaver and Krause did an album there and um, a couple of other guys did. So when I went to him and his manager, a fellow named Denny Bruce, and it was primarily Denny Bruce who, who brought this project in, and he was John Fahey's manager and uh, also ran the label. I was very influenced, as were a number of people, by an album in the early 1950s called The Anthology of American Folk Music, uh, volumes 1, 2, 3, 4, by uh, a fellow named Harry Smith. And, Uh, It told all of the roots of American folk music. So I went in, the name of my record was the Anthology of Interplanetary Folk Music, Volume 1. And uh, it was too long for them to put on the label. They just called it Nomos. But one of the reissues that's out now, or the re-recordings, actually, is uh, on a label called Revenge International. And they gave it the original title. So if you want to find Anthology of Interplanetary Folk Music, Volume 1, it, it does exist now.
1: The detail I really liked about the nomos story—that's sort of the like spine-tingling detail—is this weird fact that the Dogons, supposedly the nomos, gave them information about where Sirius B is. Oh, I didn't
2: talk about that. I'm sorry. They had a map of uh, that the nomos gave them, which is again something that they represent in their art a lot. That shows pretty much where Sirius B was at the time that they came that matches people knew Sirius B was there but they didn't know that it was a double star that revolved around itself and all of that the ancient Greeks knew where where Sirius was but the Dogon knew it earlier and uncannily that is where it is so either they they had a really good guess or um, they must have gotten some real
1: information (laughs) and basically it's it's not visible to the naked eye. No, no, it only it only were.
2: became visible in the 1840s with telescopes, and this legend goes back about 4,000 years. So, um, that's actually, it's, if you think about it, that's a little bit more verifiable than uh, our angel stories. <laughs> they actually they could actually pinpoint where they came from.
1: <laughs> not only is it imagining what this you know alien race. It's not just imagining their music. It's also imagining, kind of the DNA of of our music. Yeah. It's imagining the the you know the furthest roots of of our music tradition. I guess.
2: Yeah, it's interesting. It is. It it, it it's a good theory. I mean, it's it, it's it's a lot of fun. I don't know. It it wasn't research to be a scholarly record. I wasn't trying to. Uh you know, actually, you know, recreate ancient Dogon folk music. Although I've had some people from Mali who've heard it and written to me and saying it sounds really good and really close. It wasn't intended to be that way. So, uh, but it hit it somehow.
1: So the record came out, and and as you said, like a few people liked it but pretty much
2: like I said there were a couple of ballets that were done with it 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 got some interesting reviews got played on classical late night radio in in America quite a bit and around the world and then it disappeared the label was sold it disappeared and then uh, all of a sudden from two sources they wanted to put it out again and I had done a later version of it that was much more how I envisioned it to begin with there was a second album that I did in 1982 that was an extension of the Nomos album. They're actually supposed to go together. And that's the version that's out now. And it was tied together with different pieces in a different order and different sounds in between each one. And I put that one out on two labels who asked me to do it. For the CD, we went with one of the labels that puts out my more quote-unquote Classical music, a label called Harmonia Mundi, and it was called Early Electronic Works. And then the RVNG International is this one I just said, an anthology of interplanetary uh, folk music, Volume One, which is a two-record set of both of those albums. So it's the same thing on both albums, different cover.
1: <laughs> I'm kind of interested in just how this this record sort of came back. You know. Just this year that it came out on, on Revenge. 2014, yeah. I mean, is that, does that seem funny to you at all? That it's like this, something no, from your lot. distant past that. I
2: don't know. I, I worked with a lot of bands the, and, and artists and performance artists in the 70s. And a lot of the people I know, it took years for people to actually pick up on what they were doing. I mean, a prime example of it is there was a performance art band that actually became a pop band called the Ramones that I made a record on in 1976 that went gold 38 years later in the US, so um, maybe there's a 38-year cycle of, of people liking records that I worked on that, that long ago. But also it's the same thing, a band called Suicide that I worked with, which people actually hated when it came out for the most part, nowadays is thought of as some kind of a major breakthrough album and has sold a whole bunch of records. So you know what can i tell
1: you just the way it goes <laughs> yeah.
2: that's the way it goes you know so my next record that i'm doing this year we can look for somebody to pick up on it in uh, 2055 or something yeah.
1: as you said you you recorded albums by bands like the ramones blondie suicide richard hell how did you find yourself in that position or how how did you become the guy that records those albums
2: yeah it was it was kind of by accident well it
1: actually wasn't just
2: joking there. I'd started off with my own studio in Florida, and I worked on um, like that guy from the old radio station, back in the old days. Now, I I had my own little studio, and I was worked on a band down there for a label in New York, who brought me to come to work for them and do recordings and find bands. And it was a label that primarily was interested in, at the time, in importing European experimental and and, avant-garde and progressive music. I took that to heart, and the first things I wanted to sign to the label when I got there were Can and Craftwork and Popol and Amundul and all of those bands, which had an obvious influence on me, if you know the Nomos record. But in any case, Tangerine Dream as well. Cheers to Edgar. But in any case, I started getting the brief from my boss, who was a very flamboyant promotion guy, who thought, instead of importing bands from Europe, we could sell American bands back in, in the UK and Germany. So he said, find some bands like that in New York. <laughs> that was my brief. So I went down and through my contacts in the village through people like Danny Fields, who was the guy who uh, discovered the Stooges and um, you know, was an A&R guy for Elektra and that, and Paul Nelson, who was the guy who signed the New York Dolls. And some journalists were telling me about this new up-and-coming scene down in the Lower East Side in New York from that we're playing these two clubs mainly, Max's Kansas City and CBGB's and a couple of other performance theaters and I went there looking for the first person that interested me was a a lady named Patty Smith. You know I saw her a few times and her and Lenny Kay were a duo at the time and they sometimes had a drummer and I wanted to sign them to our label which was called Sire. Couldn't sign her because she was already had an offer from a way bigger label with a lot of money, uh, who she did sign with. But then I found in the club down there, the other bands that were playing down there, and the Ramones, Talking Heads, Television, and all of them were part of that very early scene. So I would go there every night to CBGB's and to Max's and just watched the development of the bands for a long time and eventually, when I thought they were ready, I brought my bosses down because they were the ones who would actually have to sign them. On a couple of them, they said I was out of my mind and on a couple of them, they, they signed them.
1: <laughs> I'm not sure there are music scenes in the world that still work like that where there's this local community and the same bands are playing all the time in the same clubs and like you said, like you, you kind of watch them develop, watch them get better. Do you think that was sort of that was of unique in
2: America? Well, all over actually. That there, there was a way, music was a, was really, and, and this goes back to this folk music fascination that I have. It was urban. The, the bands that I'm talking about and the other bands in, in that sort of rock and alternative rock were actually kind of like giving urban folk music. They were. It was developing in the specific venues where they played. Uh, there was a scene like that in San Francisco in the '60s. There was one in L.A. There was one in New York. There was one in all over Germany, which was focused on what's uh, now the restaurant of the how-to. You know, uh, where, where a lot of those bands played clubs, very similar to CBGB's. You know, maybe eight years earlier, when you would find all the Faust people and stuff playing there. So. Um, I don't know if it exists now, because everything's more scattered. And it's, it's probably too expensive to have a band nowadays and live in a big urban environment. The, New York in the 70s was very, very cheap to live in that area of town. Very dangerous to live in that area of town, by the way. It added all to the atmosphere, the music, but I, I don't think you could do it now. There might be one in Brooklyn that's doing that that I don't know about, but hopefully there's somebody like me down there checking out all the bands, if, the, if it is.
1: I don't know, I feel like that atmosphere is kind of lost, um, you know, yeah. that uh, downtown downtown scrappy... No, that, that's not there anymore
2: and, in the least. It's it's so gentrified, it's unbelievable.
1: But so if you're doing A&R for Sire, basically the nature of that job is to go hang out at these places like CBGB's and sort of stand in the back and watch the bands and home in on the ones that, that you like and that you want.
2: Yeah, and in those days, the A&R guy was also the producer. The producers worked for record companies, there were very few independent. Uh, at that time. And so the first time when I finally decided to bring the Ramones into my boss, they played at CBGB's and the opening band was Talking Heads. It was their first gig at CBGB's. I, I bought my boss the next day I went there and said, look, you should check out, sign both of these bands. You know, they're both really funny. So um and that that that's one of my biggest criteria. They make me enjoy things. So um and that was an audience of about five perhaps other than myself and the people in the in the club and six or seven other people from other bands. You get that and they go, okay, we'll sign this band. Well, okay, go make a record for something that has a fan base of seven people, <laughs> you know? And uh, yeah, so that's what you have to do. You have to then translate what you liked about that band and, or that artist and try and put it in a way that gets their point across to a, a, a wider audience and hopefully starts them on their career. That, that, that was kind of the job.
1: If I'm not mistaken, another one that you sort of went out on a limb for was um, Blondie, right?
2: Blondie was later. Um, Blondie was kind of rejected by every label, and th- th- that wasn't just them. I mean, Talking Heads ended up on Sire because every other label in town wouldn't have them. Quite honestly, uh, you know, it's, uh, th- th- these bands were not incredibly popular or trendy at the time. <laughs> they were playing the music that everybody likes now, but nobody heard it. You know, Blondie came about about a year later. No, two years later than I actually saw the Ramones and stuff, though I, I was aware of them. They were originally a band called The Stilettos, and it had three girls in it, three females, whittled down to one with Debbie after a while. And they were the last band to get signed out of, out, out of New York. They were signed to an... Ind- I left Sire, and I formed a production company with uh, my ex-boss from Sire, and we developed Blondie after that wasn't sire that was like about a year it was right after the first ramones album came out
1: i remember reading that they were um if like they were really sloppy or they were rough <laughs> they sort of had to be like oh you know, yeah, i mean
2: the, well the, they were uh, is the word shambolic a, a word of it's a lot of people say that in rock reviews and stuff or pop reviews yeah they they were not um They were rough around the edges, shall we say. But that was part of the charm. And and they were also, what was interesting about them is they were the first band that sampled from, and not necessarily with tape loops, but they sampled culturally from every different scene that was going on. And in those days, everything was very genre specific. You had guitar bands, you had folk singers, you had prog rock bands with guys spinning around in the air and 40 minute drum solos and stuff, and every, one had its own crowds. It it wasn't like today, where you would go, you know, play Scarlatti and then you know follow it up with Cajun music and follow it up with, uh, you know, um, Holly Herndon or something like that. If you were playing something on YouTube, uh, in those days you would generally only focus on the scene you liked if you were a fan and hate everything else. Blondie threw that out. They they took disco, rap blues, uh, acoustic folk music, 60s pop, anything, and they just threw it all against the wall and created their own songs out of everything that they liked. So they actually were more of a more important band in what modern pop is about than uh, people give them credit for.
1: The way you're describing these bands, uh, Talking Heads, Ramones, Blondie, funny it is to imagine now, it seems like at the time, they were a long shot. Like you know, from someone in your position, it's like a weird band playing to five people. Like, it's it's probably kind of a hard sell to your boss that like you know these guys are really good. But um, why was it that you saw something in those bands, or what was it? You know,
2: it was something that appealed to me. I've always liked things that were not straight down the center, to say the least. And I was trained in. What people would call "quote-unquote" serious music, and I've been writing my own music and my own music similar to *Nomos*, even before, and still am doing it. And I've—I've got—we'll get to it later, but I have you know, 20 or 30 albums of music out on Deutsche Grammophon and Sony Classical, and uh, of my own work on 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 classical labels, so to speak. I hate the term classical as much as I do punk. But in any case, I was lucky that I had a couple of bosses who believed in in the ethic of trying to create new music. They'd done folk records before and very, you know, they'd brought very obscure English bands out on, on their label in, in, in America. And the one criteria I had is because it, it was an extremely long shot is that if we give you virtually no money as a, so we don't have any risk making the record, then you can do it. So consequently, all of those records had to be made very quickly which is what they should have been anyway. I mean, I couldn't imagine sitting like, you wouldn't believe in those days, guys would sit for 18 days and get a bass drum sound in the studio and then go move on to the snare for another 18 days. And it was just total exce- excess. And we had to make a record very much like a classical record. You just set up and go, you rehearse what you're going to have to play and you arrange it. All of that stuff was pre-arranged beforehand and worked out for ages in rehearsal. It wasn't just setting up a mic and recording. But once it was arranged, you'd set up a mic and or mics and uh, just record it over a period of a couple of days because it's all the money they would give us to make it. And actually, it was all the money that they needed.
1: <laughs> so in recording an album by a band like the Ramones or Blondie, what is your role exactly? What, what what are you doing in in the in the process of creating the different, album?
2: different ones on different records? It's basically taking in those early albums by those early artists. It's it's completely different than what I do now. But w- with those early artists, you would be an interpreter more than a dictator. I mean, I wouldn't tell them what to do. That that's that's nowadays I am because I'm I'm, I'm recording my own music, so I get to I, I get to boss people around. But in those days. You would take their ideas and basically help them shape them into a a more cohesive vision of what they were trying to do and get it so it could be recorded. A lot of people said the Ramones couldn't record because when you'd see their early shows, they literally didn't know how to start and end a song. It was that basic. so one of my biggest achievements was, was saying, this is where you stop, you know? <laughs> and when you go one, two, three, four, by the time you get to five, that's where you all start. You know, so, um, you know, it can be that basic. Or in the case of Blondie, it's taking 18 million ideas that they have on a song and picking out the 10 or 12 that really form the basis of the track. So it's different things on different, d- different bands. Some, it was just a question of recording what they did but, but that, that's not that often. No, not nowadays, it's a completely different thing. When um, I write something for six months, or a year, or two years, or six weeks, or whatever it takes, we do a rehearsal for an hour or so, and then three hours later, we have half the album done with an orchestra. It's, a, it's much more, it's actually just the same thing as the Ramones, uh, and it's the way that I like to record.
1: So in a way, do you feel like kind of like an editor, or like a coach to the whole process? Well,
2: it's, it's sort of an editing thing when you're producing. P- different producers do different things. There's a very limited amount of what you would call auteur producers that were around mostly in the 60s. It would be people like Phil Spector and Brian Wilson who actually did what a classical composer did. They'd create a piece of music and then they'd you know, make sure it was recorded the way they heard it in their head. The difference between them and a classical composer is um, the two different kinds of writing. They were intuitive. They knew what they wanted to do, but they didn't know how to notate it or tell people how to play it. So it would be like trial and error to get it done, which is all that experimentation. And then there's more quote-unquote studied ways of writing music, which luckily I was trained to do, which... um, which is where you can actually write down, this is specifically what I want you to play. And Nomos is like that. Nomos doesn't vary from night to night. It's, it's, it's pretty much written, there's an orchestral version that doesn't even need the synths, that sounds, it's the same notes and the same drum patterns and all of that. And that, that's how it was written in 1981.
1: I guess looking back on this time, in a way it seems like there's a kind of cosmic luck to the idea that you had this job, you're there when Talking Heads is new and not that good yet and they're playing to five people. I mean, do you, do you feel like part of you know, your career where you've ended up has to do with the sort of chance that you're in that place in time at that point in your life?
2: Oh, we're not going to get into to chaos and chaos magic and stuff, but, but 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 yeah, probably. There's a tremendous amount of luck and happenstance that actually helps somebody in their career. Why, you know, Blondie became a hit in a band called the Miamis, who you've never heard of, who were a tremendous kind of uh, pop art band. The Miamis never, never got a record deal, but Blondie did. They didn't have anybody that... Looked like Debbie Harry, and unfortunately, uh, that's that's the way a lot of people perceive things in marketing. You know, is, but even so, uh, why why television got a deal and they didn't? Uh, you, you don't know, you know, wh- why people like Nomos now and didn't like it and or didn't even know about it in 1990 when it was around for 10 years. It's, who knows? <laughs> it's fate.
1: So off the back of um, those records you produced. You eventually did work with films, is that right? You got we, flown out to L.A. We did some to... things
2: in films. when It's my my partner in crime who's been with me since NOMOS. It was the first record we did together. Sitting back there's Castle Webb. We did, uh, when I say we, I'm usually speaking of a lot of different people, but in this case, it's us, too. We worked on um, music supervision in, in Los Angeles and did music for films and things like that. More or less, we got tired of that very quickly. Although we met some cool people that we still know and work with, like Ennio Morricone and, and, and people like that. But more or less, we had the opportunity to come to Europe, uh, another entrepreneur, another entrepreneur gentleman by the name of Richard Branson had a record label called Virgin at that time, and now it's a big part of a conglomerate, but it was a very um, adventurous label that had all these great bands like Henry Cow and and, uh, things like Hatfield in the North and all of this, and then a bunch of punk bands on it, sponsored us to come to England and work with bands and do some of our own music. We did um, five albums under Castle's name on Virgin, which nobody is aware of, but... It's almost 40 years since they came out, so maybe maybe, maybe Revenge will reissue them now. But um, that's what we ended up doing. We started working with the kind of English descendants of the bands that we worked with. So we produced a lot of bands in England that probably people in America aren't that aware of, that were pretty much in the same vein as the earlier ones in New York. We produced a, The Fall, was a band with a, a brilliant writer named Marky Smith that we did. and. Um, What's on and on way? and on and on. There's about 40, 40 or fifty of them in the UK. You know, up until the time I decided to pack all that in and just do uh, my own music.
1: How's Marky e. Smith to work with?
2: Everybody says he's really difficult and really torturous, and I think he's the funniest, one of the funniest guys I know. And he's incredibly aware of what he's doing. He really knows what he's what he wants. And, I mean, I've never had any problems with him. Everybody apparently does, but, <laughs> but I, I, I didn't. He actually stole one of the tracks from Nomos uh, with my permission and changed the name and called it Mollusk in Tyrol, The Mollusk in Tyrol, which is about him touring in the Austrian Alps, and he did a huge rap over it, and it's, uh, 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 it's the intro to the live Fall album from about 1982 or something, so he was, he was a Nomos fan very early on.
1: In all these years where you're doing all this production work for all these bands, what's happening creatively for you, yourself, or what kind of work are you doing you know, in your own music? Now? Just throughout your career as a producer. Well, I was always
2: writing all the time. We were making these albums with Castle's. Basically, if it came out with Castle's name on it, it's the two of us with featuring her vocals, and if it came out with my name on it, it's more instrumental with less vocals on it, pretty much, but they're all collaborative. We were always doing it around 19... I'm bad on years. I think 1998 or 1999, Blondie decided to get back together again, although they'd never really broken up. There were there were a number of problems with the illness from the leader of the band, actually, Chris Dine, and uh, was very ill for a while, and. They never really broke up, but they never made another record after about 1983. And every year they would phone, or I'd see them in New York, and it would be like, we're going to make a record like the old days, and we just sit in a room and all play it live and kick the ideas around and record it. So they kept calling every year, and about 1998 they finally did it. So we we did a a comeback album for a band that never really went away, and we had a a big hit on it with a song called Maria that was... uh, I don't know, number one in a bunch of countries or something, and so was the album. And after that I said, well, um, (laughs) I don't know how many countries, 19 or 20 or something like that. But in any case, um, I never really watched the charts or anything, so I don't know. People tell me what the chart numbers are, but I don't know. But in any case, um, after that album I decided it was time to go back to my day job, which is what I was originally trained to do. Uh, and what I'd been doing all along, which was the quote-unquote classical music. And there was a, a fellow who had a and would some of the recordings under Castle's name on Virgin that we did, who was aware, because of her records, which have orchestra and synths on them and are very complex. Minimal sounding, but are very complex, similar to Nomos that I knew how to work with orchestras. And he was given a job by Universal Classics, which is Decca and Deutsche Grammophon, to find people to come up with new ideas using classical repertoire, because they were getting kind of bored with doing the 85th version of Tosca with the same singers over and over and over again, and uh, trying to justify it by saying, well, this guy's learned some new new licks or something. So, uh, Un unbeknownst to them, what they what they did is they opened a floodgate, is they turned open they opened their roster to me to create <laughs> uh, new projects for all these different classical artists. So I ended up working with Andrea Scholl and James Galway, Luciano Pavarotti and the London Symphony Orchestra and Orpheus Chamber Orchestra and it goes on and on and on and on, Long Long and all of these people, and did new settings of older classical pieces and opera pieces and things like that in new, in new versions, uh, so they could get some new repertoire. And, uh, and Joshua Bell, was one I did later for Sony, is uh, uh, an extremely successful one that I did called Romance of the Violin, I guess both artistically and commercially. Again, I don't know how many it sold, but it sold a lot. People would think, well, why would you go from all these hard-edged records to all these really kind of very sedate records? and. The point is recording is still the same thing. You go into a studio and you get the thing done and you use the same microphones and the same equipment and everything, and if it's the London Symphony or the Berlin Phil that's playing, it sounds like them, and if it's suicide, it sounds like them also. It, there's no real distinction except in the repertoire that they're doing and the method with which the music was written. So I, I thought it was a logical extension, and believe me, those records that I just mentioned in the classical world are treated with much more shock and horror by the establishment than the punk records ever were. <laughs> so, so I'm kind of like uh, very happy that I did the, like what is this guy that did suicide doing working with Luciano Pavarotti? Well, having a lot of fun and making some records, you know, so that, that was basically it.
1: You mean there was shock and disgust at someone with uh, from, your background. From all the
2: critics and people like that, you know, and, and fans that actually bought them, fans of the artists bought them much more than they bought the, uh, the other versions of what they do, still to this day. And, you know, it's, uh, so so I was asked a question the other day on another interview about, do you, do you think it was selling out? And I think, no, I think it was actually more of an adventure than even doing the remote. It, it's one thing to go find an artist and work with them that's got a fan base of five, and then to go work with an artist who has a fan base of several million, and hopefully the thing you do doesn't reach only five people. So uh, I I found it more challenging to actually do the classical things.
1: This is a bit of a weird question. I feel like I realize you might not want to, you know, pat yourself on the back. But um, hearing all these stories and sort of all the great projects you've worked on, I sort of can't help but wonder what is it about the way you work or, you know, the way you approach your craft that sets you apart from other producers? Like, why, why do people want you on a record versus somebody else?
2: Usually you get a, re- a request for a recording by um, an artist. It comes from the artist. And it's because they like something else that you did. I get many more calls to do things than the ones that I do. I mean, it's a question of like, do I really want to do another three-piece guitar band that sounds like the Ramones? I, I don't think so, you know? And, and just like, uh, I don't think I'll do another Italian opera singer. Well, I'll do an Italian opera singer, but not doing the same material that I did with, with, with Luciano. So, um, I don't know. Uh, the people just like the records and call me up. I mean, there, there's other producers that are the same. There's a, there, there's a bunch of people that I really rate. And um, I'm I'm just really happy when in articles and stuff, they lump me together with them. People like Tony Visconti and and George Martin and Pop, who were always kind of lumped together in books and things like that. (laughs) Technical books, and and, uh, I just did one with um, Ken Scott, who was the fellow who did David Bowie and all that, and uh, I think George Martin and a couple of other people, we wrote articles on recording for a a book that's coming out on uh, Oxford University Press, and I'm more flabbergasted that I'm in a book with Ken Scott than anybody calling me up to do a gig, quite honestly, because I think he's a brilliant producer.
1: You've got these two sides to what you do, basically. There's the working with- more than (laughs) two. Um, Totally schizophrenic. (laughs) But basically, the you know, on, on the one hand, you've made a career out of working with other artists and sort of helping them realize their projects, and then you've got your own projects as well. Is one more gratifying than the other? Does one feel more natural to you?
2: Well, now, now that I'm older and you start seeing why something was jokingly called early electronic music. The one that I'm putting out in, in October is going to be called uh, late electronic music. As you get older, you start wanting to actually do the things like that you always wanted to do. I'm much more inclined with working with my own things right now because uh, and I'm very, very thankful that people will let me do them. Even within classical, I was pretty much restricted to doing things that the record company told me to do over the past ten years or so. But luckily with Nomos, they're saying, well, and, and, and the reaction that it got from both the classical world and the and, and the electronic music world, th- they're turning me loose to make more of my own things. So uh, that, that's what I'm doing right now. Not that I wouldn't still do a, a, a production if it came along that it, I thought, thought I could really help someone. I have to be able to add something to what somebody's doing uh, and not take away from what they want to do, to actually do a production, and I might have too strong a feeling of what I want to hear on a recording, because I'm, I'm writing now more, and the things that I'm writing are what I'm playing, so kind of shying away from production itself, and, and, unless I absolutely have to, because no one wants to hear the other stuff.
1: When did you first perform Nomos?
2: We do it in 79 or 80 or something. Yeah, 1980 or something. We did it in Texas at a weird choice twice. We did it in New York as well. And they did some ballets to it. And then they asked us to do it again in Russia in 2013. And that was really cool. I mean, we, we went to St. Petersburg and did it at a one of these type of festivals that they do there called Opposition, which is really good. That uh, You know, a lot of cool people played there over the years. And... That's the first one we did with the modern version of Nomos, with the string quartet from the, from the Mariinsky. Then we started doing it in other places. We did it at Moog Fest in uh, Asheville, which is the Moog synthesizer festival that they do every couple of years, and that leads to the new album that I have coming out, which I'll plug in a minute. But a um, bunch of different places, New York and uh, Poland and here, and we're doing it in the Netherlands, the U.S. again, I don't know, we, we have an agent that's telling us where to go, and when they tell us where to go, we go play it. So,
1: you know. <laughs> so it's always kind of been there, you know, off and on. Y-
2: yeah, it isn't like totally new. It's It's been around, we've done it, and I've performed other things. I've, I've performed as a conductor on the classical things that I've done with the individual solo artists quite a bit. Strangely enough, within the classical world, people come and hear Nomos and get it, you know, which is... A tribute to where how, how far classical music has actually come, <laughs> you know? But there's been some brilliant modern classical mu- musicians that have mined that same area, you know. And 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 actually, some of them do it a lot better than I do. You know, it's it, it's cool to have a good reaction on Nomos from the, the normal classic quote unquote normal people.
1: That reissue on Revenge did that sort of you know usher in a new era of Nomos.
2: Well, it brought it to the attention. Revenge is really a cool label and has a lot of really brilliant modern artists that are working the same, you know, the same genre, so to speak, is what I'm working. Although I don't think any of them are doing interplanetary folk. But, but in any case, because they put it out more so than the classical release, which again is the same thing with a different title, and the classical ones on CD and the revenge ones on vinyl, limited thing. Revenge brought it to the attention. Of the people like, like the C T M people and and the people uh, like, you know the more modern E D M world, if you would like to say,
1: and, and uh, Pitchfork too. Yeah, it Pitchfork got really attention. got
2: into it, and uh, and Spin and Rolling Stone and all these other people that you know. Having said that, I think Rolling Stone reviewed the first one very favorably as well, but it was a little tiny thing back in the, back in the day. You know. Yeah, back around 1981, the Tacoma one. So they got it to the attention of a lot of really cool writers and bloggers, and it, it created a revival of interest in what I was doing then, and an interest to see what I'm going to do now. So it spurred a lot of what's happening now, and I'm very, very grateful to Matt and, and Phil and the other folks at Revenge for actually doing that, and as well to um, all the people at Harmonia Mundi in France who have always put out things of mine, and Sony Classical and Deutsche Grammophon as well. So if, if somebody will put out a record of mine, I'm very, very happy. <laughs>
1: Have you always kept up with underground, independent music? You mentioned Holly Herndon and things like that earlier.
2: Well, I picked all of that up from, from Revenge because I hadn't heard of her. She played with us at Moogfest. I'd never heard any anybody music by anybody who had a PhD in computer music. So uh, that's, that's a new one on me. It's like a PhD in punk. Somebody once interviewed, interviewed me for their doctorate on the Ramones, which is insane. But in any case... Um, Uh, So I I really like what she does, and I like some of the other artists that are on Revenge. And that spurred me to check out other people who I really like that are in this new scene. And it's usually people that we've played with, because I I don't really listen to that much music by other people, because I'm too busy doing my own. It takes hours and hours and hours to write and record music, so... um when I'm done in the studio after about ten hours, I I just don't want to put on some somebody else's music, but uh, you know artists like Grouper, she's great. You know Liz is is great. There's there's a number of artists that I really enjoy. There's a couple of ladies from Norway that we really enjoy that are playing tonight at uh, at How One. So yeah, we hear it, but we don't seek it out. We only hear it if it's right in our face, you know.
1: <laughs> um, I read something you might not even remember saying this, but. Um, I read an interview from I think around when Blondie was was bouncing back when you were recording the record with Blondie at the end of the '90s. You made this comment about how you were missing um, a certain type of independent record label. I thought at the time, that this independent record label that sort of took chances and helped bands grow and things didn't really exist, and, and you, you you know you yeah. were, felt a lack of it.
2: Well, there wasn't a lack of it, but there was ver- there were very gener- genre specific in the late '90s. Whereas um, the label I worked for at the time, now it's a big name label because it was part of Warners and everything, but Sire was a very little label when I first worked with there. And certainly there were a number of independent labels in Europe and there that were very, very um, influential in developing bands. And in the 90s they kind of went away. But Revenge International, let's say, and some of the others like them, are ones that are kind of doing it now. They're very similar in spirit, although not in content, to uh, the labels that I worked with in the, in the, uh, in the 70s. You know, and the ones that were here in Germany in the late 60s. You know, there's not a lot of difference between OR, OHR Records and, and Revenge, uh, except different artists. <laughs> you know, but same philosophy.
1: No, that's exactly what I was going to ask, but what you thought about this sort of current crop of um, independent labels.
2: I think it's brilliant. I think they have to be here because the record business has really changed. I mean, the reason that classical labels like Deutsche Grammophon and Sony Classical are still going is they were always a niche and they were kind of laughed at within the overall record industry because they sold to so few people. Well, they're still selling to the same amount of people and now that's a big old chunk of what the major labels are actually selling. Everything else has come way down. So it's an opportunity to, if you want to get heard, in something, um, nowadays you have to almost have an independent label like Revenge International to to work with you and somebody that's dedicated. Because the major labels would would never touch anything that they don't think is under 100 million hits on YouTube before they even see it, you know, in the pop world.
1: Yeah, and to me a pretty interesting feature of these new independent labels is, um, reissues is a big part of what they do like with um, Revenge for instance there's obviously your record and yeah another great one yeah that was fantastic I'm and am um, very close to also the um, Blackest Ever Black released this um, Young Marble Giants related thing and um, anyway it's like it kind of goes back to what you were saying earlier about how to you it's perfectly clear that a lot of great music doesn't get appreciated until 30 years later and um now it's like there it's interesting that there are labels that release plenty of new modern music, but um, also very much have an eye on old yeah, things I mean, that would... you know. I mean,
2: It's been a tradition of independent labels to try and reactivate the music that influences the artists that they're working with now and get their roots heard, so hopefully creating more of that old folk interaction that I was talking about earlier, where people would... People like, let's say, for the Ramones, let's say they, they heard the Ramones album in a club in... Uh, Amsterdam and said, well, hell, if those guys can do it, I can do it. And the same thing with suicide. If, if people heard suicide and then a couple of guys in the north of England say, let's chip in our money and get a synthesizer and we'll create a band. So it's the same thing. If somebody on Revenge hears an album by me or by Kerry Leamer or somebody like that, and then they go, well, wait a minute, I can, I can get a, you know, a euro rack or something and, and, and do my own. So that actually starts a scene going. And that's what's really cool about these independent labels. We did it at Sire. A lot of the records I worked on on Sire, that are way out of print now. We did acres and acres of reissue series of European and English records that had been years before us. They were they were in our catalog. You know, even we did a series of the history of the British rock before the Beatles and things like that, you know. So yeah, it's, it's a tradition in independent labels.
1: Do you want to talk about your what you got coming up. You mentioned before. Yeah, you let's helped.
2: do a plug. So in any case, uh, there's, there's two different projects. There's, there's both involving synths and electronics and orchestra, which is the new way that I'm going. Well, well there's actually three, but the, the, the two that are imminent, one is a successor to Nomos, it involves Eastern Rhythm that's done in a different way and and various things that I don't want to go into too much detail of what it's about, but that's it, and it's it's, it's with orchestra and synths, and it's coming out uh, in October. There's an earlier one coming out in May, which is one of the traditional classical ones, that is one where they're letting me mess around with synths on it. There was a reason, like I said, we played Moogfest in 2014, and when I was there, we realized it was the 50th anniversary of the Moog modular synthesizer, Also, this year is the 10th anniversary of the passing of of Bob Moog, one of the inventors of the Moog synthesizer. And uh, we put our heads together to do a recording using their first model of their reissue synth of the early module that they had. It's called a Model 55, and it's a big old thing about the size of the two of us that sits there and looks like telephone cables and all of that. And luckily, I, I know a bit about how to work it, And so um, the most iconic album that came out at that time that got everybody into synthesizers, myself included in a big way, was an album called Switched on Bach by Wendy Carlos. Sony Classical commissioned me to use the Moog and make a recording that used it you played the music of Bach in new arrangements and in a new way. And that was a pretty tall order because I don't think you can top-switch on Bach for a pure synthesizer record, it's still genius to this day. But uh, I obviously I didn't do that, but I did more like a punk approach, a uh, more chaotic approach, where I took the Sinfonietta Krakovia, mic'd them all up, and had a solo violinist that I worked with, wrote new arrangements of Bach organ music and other things, and uh, I play Moog solo, violin solo, and the whole orchestra and the violin solo are processed as audio in on the 55 Moog and treated, so it creates a kind of an enhanced orchestra. It it sounds nothing like switched on Bach, but it is, yeah, I guess it'll be, undoubtedly have some kind of the same reaction to Bach fanatics and early music fanatics that the punk records had on, on Eagles fans in the 70s. But I did it anyway, and it's coming out in uh, May worldwide on, on Sony Classical. And we'll be playing it a little bit, but we'll be playing the new album at the end of the year. The new album which is totally original music that isn't quite two or three hundred years old.
1: Okay, cool. Um, I guess for a bit at the end I was going to see if anyone in the audience wanted to ask anything. I'm just curious of um, the things that you've produced, for your own music that you've produced. What's maybe your favorite thing that you've done? It's hard to say, I'm sure, because it changes over time. But at this moment, what's
2: your favorite the thing? one that's coming out in October <laughs> because I'm working on it right now. It's whatever's in my head right now. I mean, I. I generally won't let a recording go or something that I've done go. As a producer, the artist has to approve of it and me to some extent. But for my own, if it's out there, it's something I really like. So I don't want to be too general, but if it's out there, it's something that I really wanted to do. So any of them, it changes every minute. you know. I mean, I love Castle's records, the ones that came out under her name very much, but they're very hard to find until maybe revenge can put them out.
1: Are you getting sick of Nomos at all? Oh, I'll
2: never get sick of that. I've got three different versions of it to play. I've got the original version, the quartet version, and the full orchestral version. So, you know, as long as they'll give us different gigs with different versions, it's a different piece every time. So why not? (laughs) Oh, no, Castle has a question.
0: I must say that after so many years, he plays a lot more than people realize. I
2: don't want to get into old I'm not stuff.
0: going to get into that, but I'm just saying the beauty of your communication with the artist is something I have learned, and I come from a totally different background. But I must say, the communication is something that they can share that I had never seen before. So I say thank you.
2: Oh, that was nice. I thought you wanted to talk about uh, old kid gigs. Okay, well, that's okay. But uh, that's another story altogether. It's another, another interview. Thank you for that. That was really nice.
0: So now you are composing again, and you are doing things on Bach. Did I understand that?
2: Well, I'm not composing Bach. He, he no, composed No, you're not it. composing. Yeah, no, I, I compose all the time. I've, I've done arrangements yes. for solo violin processed, string orchestra processed, and Moog uh, modular, which processed everything uh, of Bach. It's closer in spirit to Stokowski's arrangements of Bach, but not quite as slow than it is um, uh, switched on Bach. Okay, it's, a, it's very broad and landscape type of thing.
0: To place a rude question then, because so many people do seem to work on Bach. I am a classical musician myself. Yeah. I suddenly think, why don't they do anything to Bruckner, for instance?
2: I asked and nobody would let me do it. I, 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 you I, did? Yeah, of course. I've asked for many projects. Let me tell you some projects. If anybody's listening to this at a classical label, I was almost commissioned. You want to hear the weirdest one? Wagner's libretto for The Life of Buddha, which exists. I was actually asked to do an electronic score to that by a German label that unfortunately went out of business before they could do it. I tried to um, interest people in, in definitely into doing the landscapes of Bruckner, who I I think is fabulous, and to do things where we could incorporate synthesizer into that I, I've tried I tried with Gergiev to do a, a, the Rite of Spring in Surround and they, they just didn't want to spend the money to do it I mean I can go on for hours with the projects I want to do well the record companies don't think they can sell them I, in Poland I got the idea to do variations on the uh, opening six minutes of Penderecki's first symphony which is very much like my piece Nomos uh, coincidentally in the ether but and, just to
0: return to Brooklyn yeah. wouldn't it be Fascinating to so yeah. listen to that electronic.
2: Oh, yeah, absolutely, because he has so many textures and he's so slow and trance-like. I, I thought to do that, I- my problem I had with Bruckner was t- which one to take. Would it be the fourth or would it be, uh, I-, I don't know. It you know, the- doesn't
0: matter, they're all the same.
2: Yeah, yeah. well, they're, fact- they're all great. And it would be, and nobody—they thought it was the most uncommercial idea in the world, except if I wanted to do Haydn string quartets. You know <laughs> what?
0: I would love to work with you on that one, and I would love to listen to it.
2: We should talk afterwards about yeah. it, mm, and we, we should go beat up on Deutsche Gramophone and make them uh, give us a budget to do it. They won't. No, they absolutely won't. It's
0: Revenge. <laughs> yeah, Revenge
2: International may go. I don't think they have the budget for... The problem with Bruckner, again, also, is I'd want to do it with some orchestration, and Bruckner's orchestration is so large.
0: I know, but it doesn't They, they won't
2: record Brookner very much. Gunter vond, on, on the other hand, if he was around, they'd probably still do it with you know, him conducting Bruckner, but uh, <laughs> well, we're getting way off the track here. <laughs> but we should have a conversation afterwards.
0: Yes, thank you. <laughs>
1: Um, I had one pretty stupid question I wanted to ask, which is just from your rock and roll days from New York and the downtown scene and whatnot, do you have a favorite rock and roll anecdote from that time? Some story you've told again and again over the years?
2: There, there's some that I don't think I could tell uh, without offending people, but there's a lot of those. favorite. No, there, there's millions of them. I mean, that's the thing. It, it, it's hard to say. I'm hard pressed. I'll tell you the favorite anecdote is that I almost never ended up in working in A&R because there were two companies I was going to audition for as an A&R guy. One, one of them was Sire who asked me to come up to New York and work for them. And another will remain nameless but it was a bigger label. And I came up and I was offered the job from Sire and that's why I went to New York to take it. But this other company interviewed me and it was on a Friday afternoon. And they said, look, before you sign to go with Sire, maybe you'll want to work with us. Go around town over the weekend and look at some bands and come back to us on Monday morning before you have to go to your meeting at Sire and tell us what you would sign as your first thing if you saw anything. Good. And give us a report so we see how you work. And uh, we'll give you a job and it'll pay much, much better than what you're getting at Sire. So I said, oh, okay. And I was staying at a friend's house in New York and we went out to see some bands. We went out to see a really terrible kind of glam rock band that I can't remember the name of, that was recommended to me by another a and guy in New York. It was just imitators of Roxy Music or something. And the opening act was Suicide, and that was the first band that I'd, I'd seen in, in the New York scene. And they were great. They were much more performance art. Alan Vega, the singer, is whipping the tables with the chain and scaring the shit out of the audience and everything. And uh, you know, and the, this big wall of noise from Marty Rev is musique concrète. And I was like. Okay, I'll, I'll sign that one. So on Monday morning, I go to this office and go to the guys and their big board meeting and everything. I said, yeah, I found this band called Suicide that I want to sign. And they went, like, there's the door. So that's how I ended up working for Sire. I, uh, I got fired from the other company before I even started because I liked Suicide. And
1: yeah, I guess Suicide was never that commercially successful, but they obviously I, I have don't another think to this day of...
2: they're commercially successful. I don't think they care. <laughs>
1: Okay, well, thanks a lot, Craig. Um, okay, really thanks great. a lot for
2: everything. Thanks for listening. Thanks very much. Thanks.